Hello and welcome to Exploring Global Problems, a podcast where we talk to academics from Swansea University whose groundbreaking research is tackling global challenges, from health innovation to sustainable futures and the environment, from digital technologies to clean energy. My name is Sam Blacksland and today I'm joined by Nuria Lorenzo Dus, Professor of Language and Communication in the Department of Applied Linguistics at Swansea University. Her research explores the dark side of social media, focusing on the safeguarding of children and the prevention of online child sexual abuse. Nuria, welcome to Exploring Global Problems. Good to see you. Thank you. Good to see you too, Sam. To begin, obviously, it's worth saying at the outset that this is a disturbing topic, a sensitive topic. But could you just give us a a broad overview of the major challenges that you're grappling with? Yes, I think you're right in saying that this is a sensitive and um, issue because we're talking about vulnerable individuals, children, and we're talking about their abuse uh, through digital technologies that otherwise can be hugely empowering. Because of that, it's very important that we actually address this issue with the sensitivity that it requires. The figures that we get on a daily basis about the number of cases uh, to do with online child sexual abuse are really upsetting and they they increase year on year and they increase in the UK and they increase globally. No matter how much knowledge and expertise you try and bring together, this is not an easily fixed issue. So that's one key challenge. We're not just academics. In my case, I'm also a mother um, and a mother of a teenage daughter and a younger daughter as well. And to be able to do research into online child sexual grooming when you've got children yourself and children of an age which is regarded as, you know, highly vulnerable. So that is a challenge as well from a research point of view, not just the scale of the issue, but the fact that it is a highly sensitive, deeply upsetting subject matter. You said that cases are on the rise. That's right. Yeah. Um, why might that be? Is it partly because we're better able to detect the cases or are there other factors at play here? I don't think there's just one factor. There are a number of factors. One of them is clearly the fact that you know access to social media uh, by children is now normal you know, um, in ways that it wasn't, say, 10, 15 years ago. So that might be one um, key reason for the scale. But also is the fact that um, those the perpetrators are also able to exploit technology and digital technologies in ways that perhaps they weren't able to exploit again 10, 15 years ago. So we have this combination of an increased access to social media and a normalization of that access, which, mm-hmm. as I said, you know, can bring also a lot of positives. And the fact that um, perpetrators are able to exploit that interest in social media um, for their own, um, you know, to their own um, advantage. Yeah. What kind of tactics do adults who are grooming young people online use? Mm -hmm. Okay. So I always like to say that um, when I get asked about the tactics, I like to say that the good news is that those tactics are um, patterned, i.e. they follow specific um, regular um, ways, um, which for me brings us hope because it means that if we can actually model what those patterns are, if we can actually identify regularities in the way in which they groom children online, then we are one step closer to being able to detect and certainly prevent 
you know, um, the, the, the issue. Um, what are those tactics? Well, um, we've been looking at um, the language that online child sexual groomers used. So my research has not looked at images so far, even though I'm conscious that that is really quite a, a problem at the moment. Um, and we've been looking at the language that they use and we've been identifying not just words that are sexually explicit that get repeated on those, those words are there, are there and are very frequent. We've also been looking at different expressions and different intentions that these, these perpetrators have and how they word them. And we've looked at these in really large data sets, millions and millions of words, and we've identified a number of goals or intentions which therefore mean tactics that they use. So one of them, for example, would be to develop the trust of the, uh, of the child victim. And obviously to do that for deceptive purposes rather than, you know, as a mean to genuinely, um, you know, become a friend of the victim. And to do that, they'll use a number of um, strategies, language strategies, that you and I will also use when we want to get close to each other as friends, um, as well as, you know, other types of relationships. So we'll show an in we'll then show an interest in how you spend your time. So hobbies, pastimes, they'll also be um, asking about other relationships that you may have, whether they're friends, with family, with other maybe boyfriends, girlfriends, and so on. They'll be uh, praising um, the victim. They'll be paying a lot of compliments. Many more compliments, actually, that you would find normally in any interaction. Um, but the interesting bit is that those compliments will not necessarily be um, targeting sexual attributes of each or characteristics of the child victim. They may be about their level of maturity or their ni how nice they are or how well they play a particular um, game online. So they are not always sexually explicit. And I think that's quite an important um, finding within, with regard to the tactics. So all of this is part of the development of trust, which is the main goal or intention that groomers um, try and achieve when they are manipulating children online. In addition to that, they'll also try and isolate or separate the child victim from those who mean anything in their lives. You know, that may be parents, that may be other friends, other relatives, you know, anybody that they perceive to be an obstacle on their way to getting or gaining exclusivity. And this isolation could also be physical, so trying to see how they can get to the child victim on his or her own. You know, or emotional affective, which means that they probably will be maybe implicitly criticizing mom and dad who are, you know, not so good because they don't let you do this and they don't think that you are that, you know, that mature, but I think otherwise and so on. So this, this sort of tactic of isolation is quite um, important. Um, another tactic has to do with all the time gauging how likely the child victim is to go along with whatever it is that they are proposing, um, whether that's to swap an image, an indecent image, or or to arrange to meet, you know, physically, in the physical world. Um, and to do that, they use, again, a range of strategies, you know, they may use reverse psychology, um, but also they may use bribes, coercion, you know, threats, you know, and so on. And then perhaps the tactic that most people tend to think of when they think of online child sexual grooming is one that we refer to as sexual gratification. And what it means is that they will be introducing language um, that desensitizes the child 
um, to sexual behavior. Um, and sometimes they use that alongside reframing, linguistic reframing. So they will present sexual behavior between an adult and a child as if it were beneficial to the child in the future. Those are the main tactics that they use. I think it's very important to say that those tactics are not used sequentially. They actually are interlinked in how they use. So it's not that first they do one bit, then they do the next one, then they do the other bit and so on. But what we have instead is this entrap entrapment network, which happens through language and also images, as I said earlier, but which happens through communication. And that can happen very fast, but it can also take a long time and cases vary, you know. So those are the main tactics that they use. And as I was mentioning earlier, the important bit of news here is that when they use these tactics, they actually use regular expressions, regular sentences um, quite frequently. So it's therefore possible to begin to anticipate and therefore detect what those regular ways of either isolating or obtaining sexual gratification and so on may be. And I see here where your role as professor of language and communication yeah. ties into this so clearly. And I will come back to talk about your specific research. But just before that, um, this term grooming mm -hmm. that you've used a couple of times, does that mean something specific? I assume it ties into what you've just said, but can you maybe expand mm -hmm. upon that? Okay. So the term grooming has to do with this notion of uh, manipulation, you know, I'm preparing for something. And that something obviously is illegal. It's a term that, you know, etymologically has moved on, you know, uh, quite significantly from earlier meanings of the word, which were not necessarily negative. And we still use them in terms of like grooming um, a dog or later on grooming for political, you know, for a political career. Sure. To more recently, um, this sort of criminal sense in which you are preparing, you know, through communication, um, somebody to do whatever it is that you're trying to, to you know, to achieve. Um, and it's interesting because the term, even though I'm using it in the context of online child sexual abuse, it's also a term that is being used for other forms of manipulation in so across social media, including jihadi radicalization, but mm. also what you might call, and indeed I call in my research, ideological grooming for political reasons, so extreme right um, grooming into extreme right uh, movements and so on. That's, the, that's the, the meaning of the term. If you'd like to visit us and find out more about studying at Swansea University, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash open days to book your place. What kind of platforms do these offenders often use? You talked about social media, mm -hmm. but there must be a whole plethora of places, websites, um, yes, indeed. I mean, they don't. If they if they were only using one, sure. <laughs> that would be, be quite nice. Them, that yeah. would be quite nice um, for a res from research uh, from a research perspective. But no, they use pretty much a plethora of platforms, as you just said, and um, gaming as well as you know more sort of traditional, if if that's the word, um, social media platforms. I'm reluctant to name and shame, but well. Because it would be unfair to do that, quite honestly. Yeah. You know, they do move. And also the other thing that we've noticed is they move from platform to platform. So, again, um, it's not as if they start, you may start, you know, the grooming may start in a platform, but then, you know, after a few interactions, then, you know, the conversation and the grooming may then move on to one or two or three 
other platforms. Um, I think it's important to say as well that these are, um, you know, clear net platforms, so to speak, but there's also a hell of a lot of online child sexual abuse and grooming, as you can imagine, that happens in the deep web. And that's not an area that I've looked at um, yet, but I am aware that that's an area that really requires being um, looked at more closely. There's probably parents listening mm-hmm. to you and thinking that this is a this is a huge concern and something that they are worried about personally. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give to them? The advice that I would give, because it's the advice that I have given myself in a sense and that I'm applying, is that um, there are a number of products out there, filtering software and so on, that is important that they use, but they're not 100% bulletproof, you know, mm. safe. Um, instead, what I think would work best is to combine that side of things. So being careful about, you know, what levels of access, you know, children have uh, when they use the internet and social media with a continuous conversation about what it, the risks, but also the opportunities are on social media. And that's not just like having a one-off chat and ticking that off and thinking sure. that's fine. Woof, I've done it. We're safe. It's not like that at all. It's about using any opportunity to talk about um, the potential risks, you know, and also importantly to talk about um, how to develop healthy relationships online as well as offline. And that I think is the positive spin that we can use. When I, we've given a number of talks um, in schools and other um, places and parents always ask that question, you know, what can I do? What can mm. I do? Should I remove the, the, the mobile phone? Well, no, obviously, clearly not. Um, but the other thing that they also tend to be worried about um, is their own knowledge and, and understanding of technology. That was going to be my question. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm only in my late 20s, yeah. but I look at my students who I teach now and yeah. their grasp of technology is far superior to mine. Yeah. They use platforms that I've never heard of. And for people between the, the relationship between a, an adult and a child, mm-hmm. that gap is even wider, isn't yeah. it? So I, yeah. I assume that's a, a huge issue. But that's a huge issue for parents who feel that that places them at a disadvantage. Yeah, why sure. not turn that around, flip it completely and use that as an opportunity to learn? You know, why not place your child as the expert and you as a parent, as a keen learner? You know, and, you know, you don't have to start every conversation with, by the way, is that, you know, a platform used for grooming or are you concerned that you're being groomed? No, it's about having a number of conversations about how do you use this social media? Exactly. You know, and once you've got that, you've got an opportunity to then take a conversation further, you know, into the, you know, in the air, in the way, in the way that you think it should be taken further. And I think children generally respond positively to that level of interest, you know, rather than, you know, where they are the experts, you know, and they've got parents who genuinely want to learn about yeah. the, 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 the technology that they use and how they use it. Do you look at all the technology that's out there and all the platforms and think, wow, there is a lot of stuff there. It is mm. actually a little bit intimidating. I look at as many platforms as I can and I look at them as opportunities uh, rather than as risks per se. You know, the, the online child section, the issue of online child section grooming could happen in one, two, three, 31 million platforms is that it's not just platform specific so to look at them as as increased threats rather than as what i think they are which is you know technology opportunities that we need to learn to use and make the most of would be i think um unhelpful for parents so i don't tend to be um scared by Mm. the sheer 
amount of you know options that we have. Rather the opposite, I try and think that they are opportunities for us to you know to to make the best use that we can of digital technology. So things like social media, do you see that as broadly more liberating than it is problematic because it connects people and it helps you keep in touch with friends and all that sort of stuff? Do you, do you have a generally positive view of? I do, of those sort of I do, here? and children do. Yeah. I think generally that's not to say that the dark side of social media is not there, and sure. clearly my research is into that. Sure, um, but. I generally think that the positives outweigh the negatives. Yeah. Lots of the child sexual abuse crimes go unreported, don't they? That's right, yes. Yeah, why? Well, there are many reasons why, many, many reasons why, and some of them have to do with how the victims uh, may feel about, you know, what's happening to them. Um, you know, just, you know, the sheer trauma that they, they're going through or that they've been through. But one of the reasons we, which our research shows you know, to be quite um, telling in this, in this respect is that a number of, of victims or child victims may not realise for some time, at least, that they're being groomed mm -hmm. and they believe instead that they are in a romantic or friendship-based relationship with the adult who's obviously abusing them online. And we've looked into this quite in a lot of detail because our research shows that there are many occasions in which the language that the perpetrators use is sexually implicit rather than sexually explicit. I was giving you earlier the example of compliments and how they may not necessarily be compliments about sexual attributes. They may be about personality features. But you also have groomers using verbs such as vague language, you know, verbs such as like or hug or cuddle, where they really do not mean that. <laughs> they mean sexual activity with a minor. They also um, use a lot, a lot of this implicitness in the way they communicate. At some point, they will be explicit. I'm not saying explicit, and it's not there, which means that the child may feel that they are really in a special relationship, that the groomers care about them. Um, and that's why, for some time, they may not realize that that's what's happening to them. And by the time they do, then they feel too ashamed. They may feel that it's their own fault, that they are responsible for it, that they, you know, in a way, contributed actively you know, to what now, at, that, at some point, they will be, believe to be abuse. So that, I think, is one key reason why many cases go unreported. Um, I think it's also fair to say that the legal system up until recently, at least in the UK, has not been that helpful. But since 2017, um, it has become uh, an offence, um, to a criminal offence to send a sexual message to a child or a message, to, yeah, sexual message to a child across the UK, regardless of whether there's therefore later on an intention to meet offline with that child right. for the purpose of sexual abuse and regardless as well of how explicit that message is. Okay. And I think that's really helpful. It's obvious that the activity and the, this sort of behaviour is illegal mm -hmm. and, it's, and it's immoral and mm -hmm. all that kind of stuff. But there must be some grey areas mm -hmm. where, I, I can't conjure up a real world example, of course, but maybe where two people who are of similar age mm -hmm. are talking to one another, but they're not, there's not that much of an age gap, but the, the line of adulthood does run down the middle. Are, are there grey areas like that? There are grey areas like that. I cannot give, um, but legally there is very clear cut. Sure, yeah? sure. But um, there, are, um, there are a number of cases that... Um, 
I've been made aware of in which you have precisely the situation that you have described. The law is the law. And obviously most cases probably aren't sort of grey no, areas like that. No. They are clear cut and the, yes, and the law yeah, is being yeah. very clearly broken. Yeah. Um, you said the law has been improved. Mm -hmm. What was wrong with it beforehand? Um, the fact that the offence of sexual communication was not an, was not was an offence. <laughs> um, you needed to show that there was sexual abuse offline, mm. which, you know, is not, um, it just doesn't really cover, you know, or indeed reflect a situation because um, there are a number of, there are many cases in which, you know, perpetrators are actually not intending to meet the, the victim online where the abuse exclusively happens online. And I am deliberately using the term abuse because what they're doing, you know, online is not just having an innocent chat. You know, there is, um, there's clear abuse there. Um, so I think it's also important that, you know, for children and for teenagers, I think for a number of us as well nowadays, um, the boundaries between online and offline relations and experience and how you perceive your life are not as clear cut as, you know, we would like perhaps to think that's the case for them, these relationships and for the for many um, um, victims of online child sexual grooming, these relations online are as real as the ones that they have offline with other, you know, with other individuals. If you'd like to find out more about our research at Swansea University, visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research. One more legal question. Were there countries before the UK that were leading the way in tackling this sort of stuff? Um, I think we, again, without providing sort of a, a list, you know, mm. but I think the UK is, is, is doing reasonably well with this. The European Union is obviously also um, well advanced in this area. Um, I think it's probably fair to say there are a number of other countries um, where the legal regimes are not as strong as they could be. And that's why I think it's very important that um, the research that my team and I do is not just about uh, raising awareness or about describing or identifying tactics and so on, but it's also about trying to push reform and to do that globally. You know, the internet does not, doesn't know any about geographical boundaries. The problem is a global problem. It's not a nationally bounded problem. And I think that's why it's very important that we go and talk to other individuals um, in other countries. And uh, in fact, one of the things that I've done recently um, is I attended um, an event in Latin America mm. in which I'm trying to um, develop, you know, a line of research um, in this area um, in languages other than English, you know, and in Latin America, we've got Spanish and Portuguese, both languages I'm able to, you know, to work with. And I was really excited, you know, about the level of interest that um, I've had in that region, in that huge region, where, as I said, perhaps in some areas, the the legal um, regimes are not as, as, you know, as forward as, as we would like them to be. Understood. In which case, let's talk about your research and how you specifically deal with this. So, yeah, tell us what you do. Um. In terms of how I go about doing yeah. my research, yeah, okay, and on a on a day to day basis, you know, how do you how do you conduct that research? Okay, so because because I look at language, what I'm working with are texts, you know. So I'm looking at um, conversations or chat logs um, from online transsexual grooming cases. Um, it's very difficult to get um, real 
data and real chat logs from these contexts for obvious reasons, but I've been very fortunate to develop a partnership with law enforcement whereby we are actually are looking at these real chat logs. Um, and the way that we uh, work is that uh, we use a combination of quantitative and qualitative um, techniques and we use software because the, the size of the of the data sets of the corpora that as we call them that we are working with is, is is huge we need to use some methods and some software that will help us get to the patterns so we will typically uh, mine those data sets looking for recurrent terms but also we will be looking at recurrent terms as, as they are used in context because you can imagine that words can mean different things depending on you know the particular environment in which they are used so we'll be looking at longer example longer fragments you know as well and um, identifying the grooming intention but also the repeated words as i said and expressions that are normally used once we've got those um we'll divide we'll derive statistical information about their you know, the salience, how frequently they're used. Um, and on the basis of that, we'll be able to model all this work. And then is when collaborative work kicks in and um, the team and I um, work across disciplines. That's very important for us. So we work with computer scientists as well. So we are now using the wealth of linguistic knowledge that we've derived from our analysis, as I've just described them, so quantitative and qualitative, and feeding that into artificial intelligence models. So we're developing cutting-edge hybrid models, which are very different from what is currently out there, Which uh, in which norm, what tends to happen is that you take off-the-shelf AI products and then use them to analyze texts. We're flipping it, we're doing it differently. We've got all these linguistic knowledge that is taking us quite a while to get to and we're using that to inform the artificial intelligence that makes the artificial intelligence also more explainable it's no longer a black box sure. <laughs> and that's important so it's this um intersection and this synergy between um you know social sciences arts and humanities or so linguistics but also criminology and computer science that i think is getting us closer to um, identifying, you know, potential solutions to to this large scale issue. That's a it's a disparate group of academics coming yes. together there, isn't it? Like yes. you say, people from the arts and humanities, people yeah. from, from computer sciences. Um, on a very just practical basis, how do you work with these people? You know, what's your who how how is the work divided up, or how does it come together at the mm. end? Well, I, I think it's for me it's, it's essential that I work across disciplines. I really love it, and the team really love it. And I think the one thing that we've we've all realised, you know, that we've been working together for about five six years now, this team. And the one thing we realised is that we needed a common language, you know, to start us with, you know, whereby similar concepts will exist across the disciplines, but we were being but, but are being labelled differently. So developing this common language is part of it's a very important part of the of the process. Once you have that, then what you need to or what we tend to do is we tend to make sure that we work as a team genuinely, um, playing to everybody's strengths, but also uh, making sure that we don't end up in silos where I have no idea what's going on when once the work gets to the AI team and they don't know what we're doing with their corpus linguistics work, for example, instead. I tend to always get sub teams that are always cross disciplinary, and we may perhaps, 
you know, progress a little bit less fast than we would if we were just getting on with what we're expert at. But at least I know that everybody in the team knows enough um, about what everybody else is doing. We have regular meetings and we learn a lot about what, you know, what new methods everybody's using in their own fields. We do, you know, reading sessions where, you know, we share our understanding and so on. So I, I think it's really great. You know, I cannot conceive of research that is not working across disciplines. Um, I wouldn't, I don't think I would feel as excited as I, as I do when I work with colleagues from other disciplines. And these colleagues and these teams that you work with in the other disciplines, where are they based? Are they in Swansea University as well, or are they further afield? Um, and both, yeah. So the the core team is based in Swansea University, but I also have um, we also have other colleagues who work um, in other universities within the UK, but also in Europe and indeed further afield. I appreciate that. Um, obviously, on a day to day basis, you're actually just looking at databases and you're running things through software, but nonetheless, the the, the subject matter and the topic is is troubling. Mm-hmm. How do you cope with that on a personal level? Do you sometimes find yourself a little bit overwhelmed by the subject matter that you're dealing with? Yes. Well, I, th- I think I mentioned earlier that um, I look at la- we look at language. We don't look at images. I personally draw a line. I would not be able to look at images um, for personal reasons. Um, but the other thing that I think is very important to say is that because we, I work as part of a team, then we rarely do data analysis on our own. Sure. So we have a secure location where we look at the data. And as far as possible, it's always two of us. Now there will be two or more than two of us in the room if it, if it involves working on the data set for, a, you know, for more than, say, a couple of hours. Um, it's important to have that uh, reassurance that you've got somebody next to you if you need to. In addition to that, we run regular sessions where we discuss how we feel about it. Um, researcher well-being is paramount in this in this area, absolutely paramount in this area. So um, drawing upon best practice from what, for example, what colleagues in law enforcement do in this area, then we've developed our own robust um, protocol. Um, and that, for example, also involves a walk in the park um, where we win, we may actually go for a little walk and then just talk about anything that you know comes to mind and then if anything is upsetting us or if you know then we will share it if we don't feel like that we won't share it we try and also use humor um, as much as we can you know know that we would obviously laugh at you know what's going on but try and diffuse you know the stress and that yeah undoubtedly can can come from uh, from looking at these data on a regular basis and we're lucky here that we've got a park we yeah, that's are, right. the, the that's campus right. is in a park so that's if right. you want to go for a stroll then it's, yeah, that's it's what, well, easy that's, to do so yeah that's what we do good know. or the beach even if it's that's a nice right day. we've done both <laughs> good. Um, talk, we've, well, we've talked about colleagues um within universities what about people who you work with outside of universities you mentioned law enforcement agencies but i know that you work with certain NGOs as well. Yes. So do you want to say how you work with those yeah. people? Well, one of the things that uh, I was very clear um, in my own mind right from the outset is that if I was going to do any kind of applied research, which I like doing, then I would really need to go and talk to those who could make it happen and make it and help it make a difference. So yeah, NGOs, um, charities, um, such as the NSPCC, for example, with whom we've done work in the past in terms of developing prevention materials, but also law enforcement are 
I, I would say that they are part of our team in the sense that we work very closely with them. And this is not just about presenting them with the findings of our, res of our research and, and then taking that forward. It's actually involving them right from the outset in identifying what the key critical issues are for them. So it's them who identify their intelligence requirements. We then think about what methods we can bring into um, the process we discuss with them how the research is progressing. They help us focus on what is really important to them. And then that is, I think, the key to making a difference. Um, so we adopt that um, way of working um, when it comes to, for example, trying to, trying to develop um, an online grooming detector mm. um, tool. So we need to know what that tool would do. What would, you know, for example, if it were going to be a, used by law enforcement, what would be the requirements? What would be the most pressing need that that tool should be able to try and, you know, address with agencies, you know, or charities and so on. Again, in terms of development of materials, what formats would they want the materials to be? Do they want an app? Do they want a chatbot? Do they want a digital resource that they can just simply download? Is that level of, you know, day or continuous collaboration with, uh, with our stakeholders that I think is really paramount to being able to um, take the research from the theoretical or sometimes even applied to place where we conceive of it as academics into um, the reality into a practical yes. practical basis because this right. is this is one of the most common criticisms leveled at academics isn't it that we're too yeah. theoretical but we don't think about the practical implications of things that's sometimes right. but you do work with these organizations yeah, definitely, yeah. and is the aim to either now or in the future develop uh, a method that you know can catch criminals yes yeah so basically our, yeah what we're looking at is as i referred to earlier uh, we're looking at various tools or digital interventions and one of them is geared towards detection and mm. uh, detection of grooming language um, and detection that would be more sophisticated than what is currently out there um, by for example looking at implicit um, sure. um, expression of sexual intent rather than just explicit expression of sexual intent but I don't see that as sufficient in its own right the way that we think about this is always um, coupling it with research geared towards or development of interventions geared towards prevention. Um, so awareness raising, awareness raising for, for example, professionals whose main job is to safeguard children, um, whether that's educators or social workers. Um, but that's the prevention side of it is really important. And lots of academics work on, I don't know, um, experimental drugs, for example, that they hope one day is actually going to cure the mm -hmm. problem that they are exploring. Mm -hmm. It's probably not that straightforward with you, is it? Or that you can't maybe can't be that optimistic about it. This is always going to be a problem, isn't it? Yeah, I don't think we can uh, we can solve it, you know, overnight. Um, but, but you, I but you that, aim to make it better. But I think I think I'm I'm quite positive that there is certainly um, potential for improving significantly um, the solutions that are currently out there. Um, and I think in that sense, you know, the integration of, you know, knowledge and expertise from linguistics and also from, you know, computer science that I referred to, as well as the background that comes from maybe public policy, as well as criminology. And, you know, this combination of, you know, expertise and the tools that we're developing, they make me quite positive about, you know, being able to make a difference, whether or not we're able to solve it. Well, certainly not overnight, but I think there is hope. You are hopeful. Definitely. Good. 
Let's talk about you for a minute. How have you ended up here as a professor at Swansea University? What's your career trajectory been like? Okay, so I first did my undergraduate degree in Spain, where I come from. I did uh, English and German language, and then I came to the UK to do postgraduate studies, and I focused on how um, we construct our identities um, in the media. So um, strategic identity construction is where I was looking at. Initially, I was working on broadcast media, but then, as we've discussed, then I've moved on to digital media and the dark side of social media specifically. So that's how we started getting interested in essentially identity constructions because the groomers and the perpetrators, that's what they do. And also they are portraying images and constructing their own identities you know, in ways that are appealing to others. And they are therefore manipulating others through identity and the performance of um, their own selves. You know, So that's how I became interested in that area of research and that's what I've continued to do for a number of years now. Um, I also, I'm, you know, I mentioned several times the, the research team. I'm incredibly fortunate to work with a, um, with a research team of early career researchers um, and I'm passionate about developing that kind of expertise and the interest that I see in making a difference in others, especially, you know, the, the talented others with whom I work. Um, because of that, within the university, I also have a management role, mm. and that is to do with postgraduate research. I'm the dean of postgraduate research, and that means really trying to create an environment whereby not just the future leaders, because the postgraduate researchers that we have at Swansea are, are our current leaders already. They are leading in their own research areas. They're pushing the frontiers of knowledge uh, and that's why I'm interested in in working with them, you know, to make sure that their experience is as positive as it can be here at Swansea. I remember somebody telling me when I was one of the few PhD students in my department saying, you're you're the only researcher here. You know, we've all got to do administration and lots of teaching. Mm. You know, PhD students do lead yeah. the research field, don't yeah. they, like you say? Yeah. Yeah. They are researchers. I don't, I rather refer to them as researchers than as students, students. you know. Yeah. How do you divide your time between, you know, your own research and managing other people's research um, <laughs> or managing the strategy or whatever? It is I, you do? Yeah, well, I try to be quite disciplined. Um, I try to not always manage to do that, but I try to get um, one or two days a week where I would be focusing primarily on research. Obviously, if, if anything comes up with it, which is urgent to do with the management role, then I will attend to it as well. But I try to devote, um, you know, sort of um, time and block time every week to do research. Um, that's normally not difficult at all because something that I'm passionate about, so I will find the time <laughs> to do the research. Um, the difficulty is finding the time for family <laughs> and uh, for life outside of uh, your work. And that's the bit where I think, you know, um, in academia we should probably try and um, and focus a little bit more on our well-being, you know, as, as, as individuals. I'll agree to that. Yeah. Um, you said for your original degree you did uh, English and German. That's right, yeah. And I think you said earlier you speak Spanish and Portuguese. Portuguese would not be native-like, but yes, okay. and Catalan too. Uh, I, was, I, was, I, was, I was wondering how many languages you, you, are, it, you are proficient it. in. That's not bad. That's but I'm trying my best with Welsh too. Oh, well, Diane. Um, okay, let's just think about the future of your topic. Um, looking forward to um, the challenges that you face, what are those main challenges? Um, well, I think there are a number of those challenges. One of them is to do with securing funding to be able to 
conduct the, the extensive research that is required to make sure that we move from where we are to where we need to be. Um, and that, you know, in the current climate is, is always a challenge. You know? Second challenge is probably something that we've alluded to in the, in the course of this conversation, which is the fact that this is not an easy fix. You know, the, the bad guys are always going to be perhaps one step ahead of us. So um, to be able to have that, to bear that in mind, but also keep the positive attitude and the ability to then see through those challenges and not be defeated by them, I think is really important. Um, in doing that, I also mean not to be too negative about social media or digital uh, media. So I, I've tried to emphasize that, you know, it's got more positives than negatives as far as I'm concerned. So I think that is a challenge as well, not to get into a mindset that says this is way too difficult, this is way too risky, let's forget it. And I think probably the third challenge is to see this as a global issue, which it is. And therefore, it means that even though the research that I've done with my team up until now has been primarily or exclusively focused on the English language, this is something that can indeed be applied to other languages. So the challenge would be to get this sort of multilingual, multi, well, national really, um, research agenda and to make sure that we push reform from a global perspective rather than an isolated, nationally bound perspective. Might technology develop to such an extent that it actually moves away from language yes. and words? Yes, indeed. Rendering what you're doing not, not useless. Well, sense, not but. that it might move away from language, but the, the, the way in which that language would be um, materialised would not necessarily be written language. So I've said to you that I'm looking at chat logs or records, transcripts of, you know, of what essentially is text um, written language. But there are also now cases where grooming happens through, you know, uh, voice messaging audio, and audio on clips. audio clips and videos. And, and it's not as if language is not happening. Sure, Just I'm looking at language as communication and we need to communicate. But that will pose different challenges. We're ready for them as well. You know, there's software that we also that you know that exists so that it will convert, you know, written text, audio to written text, and so on. But yeah, it's quite likely that language as we conceive of it nowadays will no longer be the primary tool. However, communication will, because online child sexual grooming is a communicative entrapment um, network rather than anything else. And securing funding can be difficult as well. It can indeed. It requires that requires a lot of resilience. Keep trying, <laughs> and you'll get there. <laughs> and a lot of time as well. Again, isn't it? A we were talking about how you divide up your time. Yeah, a lot of time. Yeah. So I would say that, um, yeah, if I if I've applied for a number, I, I continuously apply for grants, and if I didn't do that, I probably would have written three books by now that I haven't sure. done. <laughs> but yeah. it pays off. You know, it's important to to keep trying. This is a worthy area of research and one that requires the funding. And my next question was going to be about the worthiness of it, actually, mm -hmm. which is that when you go home uh, of an evening, you must feel like you're doing something good or something with a broader societal benefit. Um, humbly, yes, I do. I think you actually the research that we're doing can make a difference and it's important and it's really worthy. Um, a couple of years ago, I was um, I was asked about, you know, how do we feel about this research and so on. And I remember that my answer concerned an anecdote that hasn't stayed with me, a family anecdote that hasn't stayed with me. So um, 
I was working and, you know, I was working at home and um, my youngest, who at the time would have been six years old, um, said, mum, is that an online groomer? And I was looking, I was answering emails at the time, so it was just text, you know, and clearly nothing to do with online grooming. And initially I, I froze. I thought, oh my goodness, you know, a six-year-old should not even know this term, you know, what's going on here? Um, and that has stayed with me because it, for me, sort of, so obviously I used the opportunity to try and explain to her at the right level that there are bad individuals out there who may try and get, you know, children to do things that they don't want to do. But I left it at that. But what for me was important was the fact that it made me think that what I'm trying to do will help in the sense that I cannot tell her what an online groomer looks like. And I don't think anybody can. But the work that we're doing can actually help them can help us identify what a groomer sounds like, you know, how they communicate, how regularly they will be drawing upon this strategy or that other strategy to try and achieve their goals. And I don't think that's a small, I think that's a small step, but nevertheless, an important step. So I think that reinforces the worthiness of their research. Which might be a reason why people who are listening to this might think, you know, this is this is good work. This is the right kind of thing to be doing. Mm-hmm. And they might be thinking, oh, I want to get involved with this sort of stuff. So if somebody is in that position, how would you encourage them to do what you do? Okay. If they, if they have an interest in how language and communication work, then they need to pursue that interest and they need to pursue that passion for understanding how we manage to get what we want out of others. You know, um, so what I would encourage them to do, if they're interested in language, you can approach this issue from other disciplines as well. But if they're interested in language, I would encourage them to then pursue a linguistics um, degree or to do some linguistics course um, that would enable them uh, or that will equip them with a toolkit that they need to be able to identify uh, what's going on when we, when we communicate. Um, I would also encourage them to try and read widely around other areas. As I said, I don't believe in silo disciplines. It's important that we work across disciplines. And it's important that um, if you're good with computers as well, that you develop some maybe programming skills and so on, stuff that will make you feel more confident when it comes to not just using software, but also understanding, you know, how that software works. And I think that's really important to be able to then uh, make whatever changes that might be required to get to the results that you want to achieve. So I would encourage them to pursue their linguistic passion. You know, um, I, I, I normally say everybody needs a linguist <laughs> and um, in the sense that, you know, you need to have that expertise, that toolkit to enable you to make sense of what is something that we all do naturally, which is to communicate for good and for evil. Nuria, it's been fascinating obviously that the subject matter is is dark and troubling it but it has been it's been very interesting to talk to you so thank you very much thank you if you want to find out more about nuria's research you can visit her staff profile page at swansea university's college of arts and humanities to find out more about this podcast and swansea university's research visit swansea.ac.uk forward slash research in the next episode we're joined by professor rory wilson to talk about his research into animal behavior and using tracking data to prevent extinction from poaching that's all from us today. Thank you for listening and thank you again to our guest, uh, Professor Nuria Lorenzo-Duz. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review. 
I'm Sam Blacksland, and that was Exploring Global Problems from Swansea University.